Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted July 21, 2017, we talk with Mari Margul, head of the International Center for the Rights of Nature, ICRN, at the Community Environment Legal Defense Fund, CELDF about her article in the new WPJ summer issue, The Standing of Trees, Why Nature Needs Legal Rights. We'll also spotlight other top features in that new summer issue, cover line, Justice Denied. But first, some timely insights from global affairs analyst and author Michael Moran, head of Transformative.io, risk and geostrategy consultants. Thank you, David. The Iran nuclear deal is the most significant foreign policy achievement of the Obama administration, to survive contact with the enemy, in this case, Donald Trump. Gone is the Paris Climate Accord, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and the momentum for opening relations with Cuba. But the Iran Accord, much to the dismay of many supporters of Trump and of Israel too, survives. During the election campaign last year, and right up to his inauguration in January, the new president said his top priority would be to dismantle the disastrous Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA, as the Iran deal is formally known. On July 17th, however, the administration recertified Iran's compliance with the deal, effectively conceding that it is working. To soften the blow to Iran hawks, the White House announced the next day new sanctions on Iran's Revolutionary Guards Unit and its ballistic missile program. Nonetheless, as with the NAFTA treaty, the quest to repeal Obamacare and vows to go after China on trade, policymaking and legislative achievement are proving a lot more complex than whipping up votes among angry industrial workers in the Midwest. So does this mean the administration has backed away from its promises to dismantle the Iran court? Not necessarily. Israel's government continues to lobby hard for ditching it. So too do the Gulf monarchies, led by Saudi Arabia and the UAE, both of which have been embraced by President Trump with notable enthusiasm. Yet ditching the accord will not be easy. Iran has reacted calmly to supplemental sanctions like those added Tuesday foiling the theory that the imams would stomp off in a huff. There's also the fact that the accord is supported by other signatories, France, the UK, Germany, Russia, and China, whose companies are now busily setting up shop in Tehran to take advantage of one of the world's last large youthful economic markets. The US could still pull out, of course, but the risk now is that the EU would refuse to follow, exposing yet another case where Trump's ultimatums fall on deaf ears. For World Policy On Air, This is Michael Moran. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. You must call for actions and laws that recognize the rights of the Earth, and by extension, the rights of all the Earth's beings, including but not limited to humans. I urge you to reject fracking and mega dams, and to call for solutions that are in harmony with and respect the laws of nature. Thank you. While U.S. President Donald Trump and his supporters think the Paris Climate Treaty went too far, prompting an announced withdrawal, others think it did not go far enough. Among them, in Paris as the pact took shape, were participants at the two-day Rights of Nature Tribunal that applauded Earth Law Center's Linda Sheehan for stressing concepts far more radical, albeit intrinsically conservative with a small c, the rights of the Earth and the laws of nature. Idealistic, even unrealistic as it may have seemed, progress along those lines is being made, 
at the political grassroots and in court, as spotlighted in the new WPJ Spring issue by another legal activist involved, Mari Margo. She's head of the International Center for the Rights of Nature, ICRN, at the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund, CELDF, in Mercersburg, Pennsylvania. Her article is headlined, The Standing of Trees, Why Nature Needs Legal Rights, and we discussed it recently for this podcast. Mari Margo, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you, David. Talk about the shift in attention from the cute, cuddly, or at least photogenic victims of climate change to smaller and more mundane, but also entire complex ecosystems from honeybees to coral reefs. Well, there's a growing recognition, um, I think, in the United States and around the world that the very fabric of life is wearing thin. We're seeing accelerated species extinction rates far faster than normal background rates on the order of a thousand plus times percent that you're seeing pollinators, bees, we're seeing other species like bats um, and a wide range of species that are very much at risk that are very fundamental um, to really bringing and bringing the plants and the trees and the other things that create the fabric of life on which we depend on um, are very much at risk. And that growing recognition has come after not only generations of environmental laws, but thousands of years of legal systems in which humankind has governed the natural world as existing for human use. And that means that our environmental laws today regulate how we use nature, how we use the land, the air, the water, how we use species. And so you see environmental laws legalizing activities that are inherently damaging, inherently unsustainable for the benefit of human use. And so we see environmental laws legalizing activities such as fracking, which we know causes earthquakes, we know contaminates water systems. We see environmental laws legalizing things like mountaintop removal mining, which would literally blow the tops off of mountains and drop the fill into rivers and streams, which is fundamentally based on destroying nature. And when you have a governing system, legal structures that are bent on the destruction of nature, it's no wonder that we end up in a place today in which the very basic fundamentals of life are collapsing. Ecosystems are collapsing. Species are collapsing. And of course, climate change is accelerating far faster than even the most optimistic scientific models predicted, putting not only human life at risk, but the, but the, the world's um, living systems at risk. And with that recognition, it comes with this idea that we need a very fundamental change in how we, humankind, governs its behavior toward the natural world. And we're beginning to see that actually put into practice as we move towards what we would call ecocentric focused laws that recognize that nature itself has a fundamental right to exist and that it has a right to be healthy and to thrive and that we need to begin to change how humankind actually exists with nature, to bring it into harmony with nature, which is really quite fundamentally different um, than how humankind has existed on the planet, particularly in the Western world, um, for really thousands of years now. 
a landmark victory in the fight for nature's rights came in one of the unlikeliest places, a Pennsylvania county that gave Trump a 43-point margin over Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election. But tell us what happened there 10 years earlier. Well, within that county, there's, um, there's a community, Tamaqua Borough, that became the very first place, not only in the United States, but in the world, to secure in law that nature has fundamental rights. So just over 10 years ago now, they passed the first rights of nature law in Tamaqua Borough. And the reason they did it is because this is a community that was facing environmental threats and came to an understanding that existing environmental laws, which legalize environmental harm, could not help them to protect the environment. And they needed to take really an extraordinary step, which was to recognize that nature itself has rights to exist. And so they passed the first rights of nature law. And since then, they have created a path for other communities to follow. So today we have dozens of communities in 11 states now across the U.S. that have passed rights of nature laws following in Tamaqua's footsteps. And we have the first country, Ecuador, to put it into its constitution. So nature in Ecuador is constitutional rights, fundamental rights to exist and thrive and flourish and evolve. And other countries are beginning to follow suit. And this is really, you know, some would say it's a new paradigm that's being put into law. But when we work with um, tribal nations and indigenous peoples, we realize it's really quite an ancient paradigm, bringing into harmony human relationship with the natural world in order to protect the natural world in a real way. What were the specifics, the specific threat to nature in that first case in Pennsylvania? Well, there in Tamaqua, they were having um, mining reclamation done with toxic sewage sludge. And that's inherently dangerous. Um, And that became clearly a crisis for the community. Um, and in and, and so being, they had to go through a, you know, an, a, a learning process, much like learning processes that occur in other communities when they find themselves facing threats, like fracking, which is really you know, just invading communities across the United States and really around the world. This learning process is how does this legal system work that we're being forced to take dangerous chemicals, toxins into our community, into our ecosystems, how could that be legal? And that's a key question. Why is it this way? And we work with communities. At the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund, much of our work is about helping people simply to understand how does this legal system work? And we find that it works very similarly really around the world, forcing environmentally harmful activities into communities, and communities don't have the authority to stop them. And in order to make change, that means taking on this basic structure of law itself, not just trying to tweak environmental laws, but in fact taking on the larger legal system, which allows constant endless extraction and development. And we're seeing the consequences of that, which are ecosystems and species around the world are collapsing. And what prompted the shift from um, the human victims of these uh, practices to nature itself as the victim withstanding in court? What, what, where did that idea come from and how was it successfully argued to make the switch from human beings as the victims to nature itself? 
Well, it comes with a recognition that is, this is not a brand new idea, but it's the first time that we've actually put the idea, this theory of nature having rights into actual practice. So an actual lawmaking process took place. Um, and now, of course, we have other rights of nature laws that my organization has worked in countries and communities um, to advance. And that has, that's kind of a, it builds on past people's movements that have advocated for recognizing rights of that which was treated as property under the law. So for example, uh, the abolitionist movement was not about just simply freeing the slaves. It was about transforming the legal system itself which treated slaves as property under the law and transforming them from not only being property under the law to actually being rights-bearing people with fundamental rights. Similarly, the suffrage movement in the United States and other countries, women were treated as property under the law. And it was about transforming not only this idea that women should have the right to vote, but that women were no longer property of their husband, of their father, of their brother, that they actually had fundamental rights as human beings, as living creatures. And nature's having rights really builds on those past rights-based movements, transforming that which is treated as property today under the law, which is nature, to recognizing and imbuing it with legal rights. And that's where this really builds from this idea of taking this theory and putting it into practice. Well, let's look at some of the specifics around the globe. You mentioned Ecuador uh, putting it in the Constitution. What was the situation that prompted that there? Well, you know, we worked in Ecuador with their, with their constituent assembly, which is really their constitutional convention, back in 2007 and in 2008. And there they were going through a, um, a rewrite of the constitution. Within Ecuador, there are many um, indigenous populations, many indigenous peoples. There are a lot of elected indigenous delegates to their constitutional convention who we met with. And within Ecuador... Unfortunately, that is a country that has faced extensive extraction of fossil fuels, of different kinds of minerals and metals, and that has just devastated their fragile ecosystems. Um, and there was a, a recognition that something really fundamental needed to change. And so when we met with members, elected delegates to their constitutional convention, you know, including Alberto Acosta, who was at the time the president of their constituent assembly, reading the drafting of their new constitution, you know, when we sat down with him, his first words to us were, nature is a slave. And that, that hit us very hard, this understanding that we treat nature as a slave under the law, that we treat it as property, we treat it as existing for human use, and the abuse and the destruction to nature that has occurred under that, not only that mindset, but that legal framework has been today that we're facing the collapse of species and ecosystems all over the world. And that really um, moved Ecuador in this direction of recognizing fundamental rights of nature, or what they call Pachamama. And indigenous delegates told us during that process that they had gone through a process to have their collective rights as an indigenous peoples recognized as legal rights within Ecuador um, some time before, and that recognizing the rights of nature would strengthen and expand their collective rights as indigenous peoples in order to protect the places where they live, their traditional homelands. And so that's, that's how things played out there. And Ecuador has really shown, you know, created this, you know, this understanding that 
not only is change necessary, but it's possible. And so other people in other countries, civil society, even governments have reached out to us saying, you know, we've seen what Ecuador has done. What can we do here? And that has really mobilized a lot of people to come to an understanding about what the rights of nature is and, and why it's moving forward. Let's look at some other specifics around the globe. Uh, New Zealand in 2014 and earlier this year. Well, New Zealand has done something that is not, that, that was unprecedented, I guess is a way to say it, um, in which they recognize legal personhood for certain ecosystems. And that came about through very long um, settlement agreements between indigenous peoples as well as the central government within New Zealand. And so it, it changed the status of nature of certain ecosystems under the law, including the Wanganui River. Um, and so establishing it as legal pers- a legal person meant that it was no longer treated as property under the law um, and has um, created a, essentially a joint guardianship to manage the, the river ecosystem between the indigenous peoples um, and the central government within New Zealand. Um, and so that is, that's a different way to move this change in status forward. Um, and what has happened um, in some ways, uh, following in the footsteps of New Zealand, is we've seen certain decisions being made by courts in other countries. Um, and so now, for example, last November, November 2016, the Columbia's Constitutional Court uh, made a decision about the Atrato River, which was uh, is a very severely impacted, um, environmentally harmed, polluted river system, which indigenous people depend upon. Um, and a court went made a decision that found that the river Atrato has certain legal rights um, in order to protect the river and conserve and restore the river. And so we're seeing here not only places like Ecuador and communities in the United States pass laws to go through a lawmaking process to recognize the rights of nature, we're now beginning to see in places like Colombia as well as in India recently, courts actually moving forward recognizing that nature has fundamental rights. And so there's this mobilization, this movement taking place in which the rights of nature is um, is really developing a new legal paradigm, um, which is really taking hold all over the world. Talk about the 2014 case in which your organization was involved representing a Pennsylvania watershed. Tell us the issues and how a watershed got legal standing to defend its interests. Well, we have been involved, and in this case continues, um, in a community called Grant Township and a separate community called Highland Township, both small communities in western Pennsylvania where um, oil and gas companies want to dump toxic frack waste into those communities. And if you're unfamiliar with um, frack wastewater injection wells, those drill um, holes through aquifers and dump the, the waste product, millions and millions of gallons of toxic wastewater that can contain radioactive materials and other kinds of toxins, um, into the ground where it will stay forever as a result of fracking. Um, and you have oil and gas companies that are coming in to sue these small communities to attempt to overturn their laws, protecting against this dumping of frack waste. We work with 
within both communities to help people in the community and their municipal governments to write laws which not only protected against the dumping of frac waste, but also recognized that nature itself has rights within those communities. Um, and so we have represented um, and continue to represent the community of Grant Township, um, providing their legal counsel to defend this law against this challenge, um, and have done something that hasn't happened before, which is um, gone to the court that's hearing the case, it's federal court, um, with a motion to intervene on behalf of nature. So for the first time in communities where nature has legal rights within the United States, actually seeking to intervene to become a party to these cases on behalf of and in the name of watershed ecosystems. So the watersheds would become parties to these cases. So um, actually involved in how the case is resolved. And so that, that continues. Um, and the, you know, cases can take, lawsuits can take quite a long time. And so we continue on and moving forward on these. But really it's the first time that we're having nature itself in its own name being able to bring itself into court. Um, and that's really, you know, the path that, that we see needing to follow. And, you know, in, in Ecuador, where the rights of nature has been codified into the Constitution, you have cases brought forward in the name of and on behalf of, for example, a river. The Vilcabamba River was the first case decided in Ecuador. And the case was brought by the river itself to defend its own rights to exist and to thrive and to regenerate. And the court upheld the river's rights, affirmed that nature has rights, and ordered um, activities that were, that were impacting, um, that were therefore violating the rights of the river, ordered those activities, which was road construction, to, to cease um, until it could operate in a way that wouldn't violate the rights of the river. And so we see this jurisprudence being developed and moving forward, and we think it's you know, the path that needs to take place in which nature itself is recognized as having not only fundamental rights, but that those rights can be enforced and defended. Beyond legislative and court victories in specific cases, you're looking for massive political action, demonstrations, mobilization of voting power, and perceptual societal shifts. Uh, talk about the model you, you see there. Again, women's suffrage, but also you say gay rights, the acceptance of gay marriage. We look a lot at history. We try to take, um, you know, look at those movements that have successfully advanced fundamental rights. You know, we talk about the abolitionists. We talk about the civil rights movement. Um, we talk about suffrage. And, of course, our, you know, in the United States, we have the modern-day um, movement to recognize a right to same-sex marriage, um, rights of gays and lesbian and transgender people. Um, and those movements, all of these movements, have been generational movements in that they've taken generations um, of struggle to recognize in law these legal rights and to have the ability to protect and secure and defend those rights. Those movements that have successfully achieved this have done so not only by advocating for specific legal change. In order to achieve that legal change, that recognition of rights, they've had to move the culture, shift society's understanding and, and really it's not only its mindset, but how it feels, it's the hearts and minds, if you will, 
of people to understand how the legal system is used to oppress, to discriminate against people. So, you know, during abolition, you know, you had things like Harriet Beecher Stowe's book, Uncle Tom's Cabin, which really shined a very stark light on what it actually meant to, to be a slave, how the legal system itself um, was fundamentally inherently oppressive um, and unjust. In terms of, you know, the suffrage movement, similarly, you saw people like Susan B. Anthony and other suffragettes attempt to vote on election day and then get their day in court when they are arrested for doing so in order to be able to show the wide world just how unjust and illegitimate the existing structure of law is. Within the gay rights movement, our modern day movement here, you have um, people that are seeking to get married, go to county clerk's offices to apply for a marriage license as a same-sex couple, be denied that license, and then have their day in court to show just how unjust the legal system is and why and how it needs to change. It's that cultural shift that comes after people see this happening. Um, you know, in, during the civil rights movement, it was people being beat up. It was people being blown down by, you know, hoses in which, you know, the police themselves were going after people that were peacefully marching for civil rights. Those movements have succeeded because they've essentially lifted the veil on how the existing system worked. And therefore, people understood it needed to change. And that cultural shift is absolutely essential when we're talking about nature as well. Mobilizing people to make fundamental change in law means mobilizing people to have a fundamental change in their understanding of how the system itself today is unjust, it's illegitimate, and with respect to nature, it's literally killing the planet. Um, and so, yes, we absolutely see a need for a fundamental cultural shift, societal shift in our understanding of our relationship with the natural world, our dependence on the natural world, and an understanding that, you know, my ability to enjoy clean water or clean air is dependent on nature itself having the ability to enjoy clean water and clean air. These things are integral. Um, we act like we have a choice about whether or not to protect the environment. We don't have that choice. Uh, we depend on the environment. This is not a luxury. Um, and so that shift in understanding is beginning to take place. It's beginning to take hold. And the law is moving along with that. So what do you see as the next major practical steps or court cases to advance the legal rights of nature for your organization or in general for the movement? Well, in general, I think, I think what's happening is we need more people in more places um, not only gaining this understanding and having that shift in understanding, but mobilizing um, to drive changes into their um, their legal structures in their own communities, in their own states, in their own countries. Um, for example, uh, we have been working in Nepal for a number of years. And in Nepal, climate change um, is deeply affecting that country. It's melting on the glaciers of the Himalayan mountain range. You know, you, we, we talked to you know, a Sherpa who told us that the mountains are turning black and that's coming with the melting of ice and snow. And so it's this tremendous impact from climate change that's occurring in countries, mountainous nations like Nepal. And there we're working um, with civil society and with members of their parliament to advance a rights of nature constitutional amendment um, that would specifically address uh, climate change and the Himalaya. And that's moving forward. Um, and that, I think, would be really an extraordinary move. 
um, if Nepal can move this forward into their constitutional process. And it's a long-term effort, but it's been going on and developing um, support for that moving forward. In places like Australia, people are beginning to mobilize, and we're working with civil society groups there, um, environmental NGOs there, to develop campaign to recognize rights of the Great Barrier Reef. Um, the reef, much like coral reefs around the world, is facing extreme bleaching and die-off and is really lifting the veil on people's understanding of what we're doing as humankind to the planet and how that needs to change. Um, and so a campaign is developing there around recognizing fundamental rights of the reef. And so we're seeing in different places around the world that there is a new mobilization taking place to recognize the fundamental rights of nature. My organization is to our International Center for the Rights of Nature is working in different places. We welcome people contacting us to say, hey, we'd like to learn about this and move this forward. Um, and so that's really what we see the work that needs to happen, that it really needs to take place all around the world um, and that it's going to be this mobilization that occurs and we don't see it as this quick fix. It's not just another tool in the toolbox. What it is is really building a rights-based movement for nature. And self-interest, of course, because we are dependent on the planet. We are dependent on the planet. Mari Margul, thank you. Thank you, David. Mari Margul is head of the International Center for the Rights of Nature at the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund in Mercersburg, Pennsylvania. Her article in the New World Policy Journal summer issue is headlined, The Standing of Trees, Why Nature Needs Legal Rights. Since we spoke, Spokane, Washington, federal judge Thomas O. Rice dismissed a case brought by CELDF that claimed federal statutes block local lawmaking to assure constitutional rights to a healthy, livable climate, specifically by banning train transport of coal and oil in the area. One upside, as CELDF saw it, was that the ruling, based on grounds of legal standing, also invited local residents to press on and get such an initiative passed so courts can decide the actual conflict of rights involved. Also featured in the new WPJ summer issue, cover line Justice Denied, you'll find articles about how Egypt's lawmakers codify oppression, why Honduran farmers sued the World Bank for investing in murder, what imperils disruptive New Berlin, and much more. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, online news editor Laurel Jerombeck, podcast producer Anna Grace Carter. I'm David Alpern.